0: Welcome to Conversations. I'm Bill Kristol, and I'm joined today by my friend Paul Cantor, professor of English at the University of Virginia, a frequent converser on conversations about Shakespeare, about which you've written books, important books, and popular culture about which you've written important books. Paul is also, I should say, the editor or curator, depending on which term you want, of the invaluable website on Shakespeare and politics. You can find it by just googling Shakespeare and politics. It shows up, right? but also or go to thegreatthinkers.org, thegreatthinkers.org, and you'll see various great thinkers, one of whom is Shakespeare. Maybe the greatest, do you think? No. 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 Okay, we're sticking <laughs> on the philosophy. But he's the we're best sticking pl- with Plato. He's we're sticking be- with Plato. He's
1: the best playwright on the list. I'll guarantee that.
0: That's, 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 I'm sure that seems like a good bet. Right. Anyway, thank you for joining me today and the genesis of this conversation w- was an article in the atlantic but a few months ago that we emailed about yeah. uh, claiming that maybe shakespeare was a woman and i was a little uh, just astonished that this was kind of what i took to be some old kind of shakespeare's not shakespeare trope that was turned out to have a life today and you actually knew a lot about it and have done further research so well, was Shakespeare Shakespeare? Let's begin with that.
1: Yes, Shakespeare was Shakespeare. I've looked at pictures of Francis Bacon, and I've looked at pictures of the Lord of Oxford. They don't look a thing like Shakespeare. <laughs> That's good. So right. they can't have written those plays. Come on.
0: <laughs> okay, so why does everyone want to, what's with the whole, I think it's kind of unusual, I mean, if you think about it in the history of literature or philosophy or yes, art, this whole I, like cottage industry, which has gone on for quite a long time now, yeah. with different iterations, which we'll get to, of other people must have been Shakespeare, so what's going on? Yeah,
1: I can't frankly understand it, but let's ta- begin with this example, just to cite a few things here. Uh, the author of the article is Elizabeth Winkler, and it does appear in the June 2019 issue of The Atlantic, and it's titled, "Was Shakespeare a Woman?, uh, and uh, she chooses a woman named Amelia Pisano, who is actually reasonably well known in Shakespeare scholarship, uh, a man named A.L. Rouse, Uh, identified her as the infamous dark lady in Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, She was of Italian descent uh, in a family of musicians who lived in Elizabethan England and are fairly well-known. And so uh, she wrote poetry, uh, but suddenly Elizabeth Winkler decided that she wrote Shakespeare's plays. And it's a very confessional Piece. uh, She begins with the fact that she's been to a lot of Shakespeare plays and she's very impressed with the female characters. And they're presented sympathetically, uh, they're often presented heroically, and they show great insight into the female character. And so, all of which uh, I think
0: is true. Is all well, of that clear. is very, the female very, characters are often much superior to their yes, male counterparts uh, in, the uh, comedies, right? in the comedies, especially
1: yeah. in the comedies. And uh, I've seen the formulation that uh, for Shakespeare, uh, tragedy is where men rule the world, and comedy is where women rule the world. And there's a certain truth to that. Uh, but from this, Winkler concludes that the person who wrote the plays had to be a woman. Now that seems to be very fallacious reasoning from the start because uh, Shakespeare also portrays men sympathetically and he portrays uh, men as very interesting and deep, complex characters, so why shouldn't a man have written it? Uh, And it does strike me as uh, an example, an extreme example of the uh, obsession with identity in contemporary literary criticism that the first thing you have to find out about an author is... Uh, is the author male, female, lower class, upper class, uh, black, white, uh, everything turns on the issue of the identity and all literature is simply the expression uh, of identity. I don't think that was Shakespeare's view. In fact, it's been a traditional view of Shakespeare that the miracle in Shakespeare is his ability to suppress his identity and uh, get himself into all sorts of different characters. The great poet John Keats, who understood Shakespeare very well and was able to imitate Shakespeare's style in ways that very few people have been able to, uh, uh, he spoke of Shakespeare as the chameleon poet. And by that he meant he could just adapt himself to any identity. And above all... That was praise, of course. Yes, that was Unlike praise. being a chameleon in politics. Yes, yes, brand. yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but the great line in Keats was he could imagine an Imogen as well as an Iago. Now, we all know Iago, the great villain of Othello. Imogen uh, is a the heroine in the play Cymbeline and is a... Uh, uh, truly innocent uh, and, and wonderful young woman. Uh, and you see the point, you can imagine an Imogen as well as Iago. That's precisely the point that Winkler and many of the uh, anti-Shakespeareans deny. They're really denying the fundamental fact of the human imagination, uh, that the real ability of a great dramatist, and especially Shakespeare, uh, is to get out of his own identity in a way to suppress his identity. Uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges wrote an essay about this in which he said that Shakespeare's everything and nothing, meaning that uh, he could well have been a cipher as a human being, a very ordinary human being, uh, and that what he had was the ability to imagine himself into a range of identities. And that's actually what upsets me about this approach to Shakespeare, uh, it denies <coughs> his imaginative ability and really denies the power of the imagination itself. And it often gets quite literal. Uh, just I, I want to be able to cite a few things here to show I'm not making this up. But here's, here's part of uh, Winkler's argument uh, uh, <laughs> uh, about Shakespeare. Yet he left behind not a single book though the plays draw on hundreds of texts, including some in Italian and French that hadn't yet been translated into English, nor did he leave any musical instruments, though the plays use at least 300 musical terms and refer to 26 instruments." Uh, This is bizarre reasoning. For Shakespeare to mention 26 musical instruments, he had to own each one of them and, moreover, detail them in his will. Uh, In fact, scholars who've looked into Elizabethan inheritance law have shown that typically uh, wills did not list objects, there were separate inventories. Uh, But really Shakespeare had to own each instrument. He wrote about it and will it specifically to his heirs uh, on the matter of books. It's very complicated and we'll come back to it, but it has been shown that uh, Shakespeare's son-in-law in the very same house that he inherited from Shakespeare, uh, in the inventory of that house, there are books. So where did they come from? We don't know. But the fact is we don't know that Shakespeare didn't own any books simply because they're not listed in his will. I own thousands upon thousands of books, some of which I have with me here, and they're not listed in my will. Uh, I'm going to dispose of them differently. Uh, So this is what I object to, but I have to say this is what makes this kind of thing uh, persuasive, that someone reading this would say, oh, yeah, where are all the books and where are the musical instruments? Uh, Now, I don't want to go through the article uh, line by line, but I do want to get to the key point for me uh, uh, where uh, (laughs) she says... I was stunned to realize uh, that the year The Winter's Tale, Shakespeare's The Winter Tale, was likely completed, 1611, was the same year Bassano published her book of poetry, Salve Deus Rex Judorum, uh, Hail God, King of the Jews. Her writing style bears no obvious resemblance to Shakespeare's in his plays, uh, though one critic strains to suggest similarities. The overlap lies in the feminist content. Uh, now this to me, is the weakest point in all these arguments, the stylistic point. Here we have uh, poetry by uh, Amelia Bassano. Uh, and it turns out it sounds nothing like Shakespeare. Now we're going to come back to this maybe, when we get to the Earl of Oxford, but in at least the case of Earl of Oxford, his poetry dates uh, from very early in his life and people are able to dismiss it as juvenilia and say, even though this doesn't sound like Shakespeare, uh, he had years to develop the style uh, that is distinctively his. But here, uh, Winkler is insisting on the fact that, wow, Shakespeare published something, uh, finished a play in 1611, and Bassano published a book of poetry at that time. Now, I'm just going to (laughs) read... one brief passage from uh, uh, her poem and then read something from The Winter's Tale. Uh, uh, The poem is about the passion of Christ. Uh, It's a very religious poem, uh, and I've chosen randomly, basically, a passage about Adam and Eve. This will show you the feminist content of the work because it's arguing that Adam was more at fault in the fall of man than Eve was but surely adam cannot be excused her fault eve's though great yet he was most to blame what weakness offered strength might have refused uh, being lord of all the greater was his shame although the serpent's craft had her abuse god's holy word ought all his action frame for he was lord and king of all the earth before poor eve had either life or breath who being framed by god's eternal hand the perfectest man that ever breathed on earth and from God's mouth received that straight command, the breach whereof he knew was present death. Yea, having power to rule both sea and land, yet would one, one apple, one to lose that breath, which God hath breathed in his beauty's face, bringing us all in danger and disgrace. Now that's very bad poetry, uh, uh, and very unlike what Shakespeare was writing at the time. It's the kind of poetry you get from people who think poetry is what rhymes. And you will notice this all the time to this day, that people think a poem has to rhyme, and more to the point, if it rhymes, it's got to be poetry. Uh, This is very conventional. Um, It's end-stopped, as we say in my profession. That is, the, 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 the lines heavily end with the rhyme words. Many of the rhymes are off, like earth and breath. Uh, I don't think you'd find that kind of off-rhyme uh, in Shakespeare. Uh, and I'll just read a passage from The Winter's Tale. Again, this is supposed to convince us that Bassano wrote Shakespeare's plays. This is early in the play when a character, Leontes, has gotten jealous that a friend uh, has seduced his wife. Gone already? Inch thick? Knee deep deep? Or head and ears a forked one? Go play, boy. This is talking to his child, who he now thinks is illegitimate. Go play, boy, play. Thy mother plays, and I play too, but not so disgraced a part whose issue will hiss me to my grave. Contempt and clamor will be my nail. Go, play, boy, play, there have been, or I am much deceived, cuckolds ere now, and many a man there is even at this present. Now, while I speak this, holds his wife by the arm, that little thinks she has been sluiced in his absence, and his pond fished by his next neighbor, by Sir Smiles' neighbor. Nay, there's comfort in it, while others' men have gates, and those gates are open as mine. Now... Uh, This is dramatic, Uh, no end-stop lines, no rhyme. I mean, uh, if you knew that Amelia Bassano, knew independently that she had written Shakespeare's plays, you might desperately try to reconcile uh, that poem with this play. But uh, if you're talking about evidence that she wrote the plays, You have to have something stronger than that. And indeed, it's amazing that she says the content is the same, but the style is different. Well, style is what individuates authors, not content. Uh, uh, Two different authors can say roughly the same thing, but in different styles. If we had handwriting here, something in Shakespeare's handwriting and something in Pisano's uh, handwriting. That's what we would use to determine who wrote what, because handwriting is individual and specific to a certain person. Whereas, again, content can be general. They can be saying the same thing, but in different styles. So I find it really quite incredible uh, that she allows that point in her own article. And to me, that undermines uh, the whole thing uh, right there. And it shows uh, how much we've lost sight of the Style of poetry and, quite frankly, the quality. Uh,
0: yeah, for me, that's what's striking. the yeah. similar content. as if I mean, obviously, anyone could have a feminist thought, and almost every serious thinker has at some point or other, from Plato on or before Plato. But the idea that you then dismiss, well, the style is somewhat different, but isn't?
1: Yeah, the, the style and kind the of quality is what differentiates uh, authors, uh, and uh, it shows what has happened here. Uh, in a lot of contemporary literary criticism that identity trumps every other aspect uh, of literature, Uh, that uh, what you're really looking for is what is the identity of the author and is he or she able to express it, as if that's what uh, 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 literature, poetry, drama uh, is about. And I do think this essay uh, reflects a dilemma in contemporary criticism. By the way, it attracted a lot of criticism uh, and it even the the Atlantic was forced to rewrite the headline uh, uh, of the issue because of some of the criticism uh, of it. But uh, uh, English studies have backed themselves into a corner at this point. Uh, So much has been devoted in the past few decades uh, uh, to showing the prejudices, the uh, limitations uh, of authors, the whole obsession with dead white males, the ideas, how how can we remain in thrall uh, uh, to these uh, authors who come from an earlier period and do not share our contemporary enlightenment. I think it's one reason uh, the humanities in general are in danger in Colleges and universities today, in particular English departments, are suffering uh, large drops in enrollment. Uh, We, as English professors, used to champion the works we taught. That was our point, to show people how great the literature of the past is and how it could open their eyes to whole different worlds. Uh, And increasingly, uh, the way literature is taught, we're just learning that Shakespeare was a creature of the patriarchy, uh, as you would see in a play, let's say, like Taming of the Shrew, that he was racist in his portrayal of uh, Othello, that he was anti-Semitic in his portrayal of Shylock. And uh, there are some truths. To this approach, and you can see uh, some ways in which Shakespeare uh, was bound by the views of his time, but that really doesn't make the literature very uh, uh, welcoming uh, to students, and I think they've turned away from that. So there has been a counter movement in literary studies, uh, uh, a desperate attempt. Uh, to find that Shakespeare was a minority of some sort, uh, to shift gears a bit, but this, I think, illustrates the point. Uh, There's been an increasing movement to, uh, uh, to claim that Shakespeare was a Catholic.
0: I've been struck by that. That seems yeah. to have slightly different champions from the.
1: Yes, although some of the
0: Shakespeare is a woman uh, thing. Yeah, well,
1: but I'll I'll, sh- I'll show you the relation. Now uh, there are arguments on both sides here. That really the question is: Was Shakespeare what's technically known as a recusant, someone living under the Protestant? Regime of Queen Elizabeth, who remained loyal to the old Catholicism. And remember, England had gone Protestant under Henry VIII, it had gone back to Catholicism uh, under Queen Mary, and now back again to Protestantism under. Uh, Queen Elizabeth and certainly was confusing to people at the time and and there's plenty of evidence that there were people who uh, secretly maintained their Catholic faith and in some cases uh, not that secretly and I can understand why Catholics would like Shakespeare to be Catholic in general people want Shakespeare to agree with them and it's almost as if they feel Uh, This will legitimate whatever their beliefs are. And quite frankly, I think Shakespeare's greatest ability is to represent the world and represent it accurately. And it does allow for people to react to Shakespeare the way they react to the world. Shakespeare gives a very accurate portrayal of the political world. Uh, If you're uh, right-wing, you're going to find right-wing thoughts in Shakespeare. Left-wing, you'll find left-wing thoughts. uh, I, I take great credit. I'm a libertarian, and I've never thought that Shakespeare was a libertarian. But I'm willing to. Further face...
0: research will allow you to f- discover this. Uh, no, I, I,
1: I've shown that Ben Johnson's play, Bartholomew Fair, is a libertarian play with deep associations with Friedrich Hayek. So I've done my bit there, but Shakespeare, I have just read him and read him, and I don't think he was measure a Measure for measure, no? Yeah. Uh, There's a little uh, bit of libertarianism well, there, Yes, right? you but, know, but right? uh, I, I believe he had yeah. an aristocratic worldview. Anyway, but I'd just like to say I'm an exception in right. that respect, that everyone feels they've got to get Shakespeare on their side. So again, I think it's understandable that Catholics have argued that Shakespeare was Catholic. You know, By the way, I think an honest reading of his plays shows that he was anti-Catholic uh, in the terms of his day, that he wanted religion taken out of politics. And you can see it in his history plays, you can see in Measure for Measure that he thought having a Catholic politics would be disastrous. Anyway, that's a subject for another conversation, uh, but in any case, what surprised me is when non. Catholic, critics started arguing for Shakespeare as Catholic, and this would include Stephen Greenblatt uh, and a whole uh, set of critics, uh, many of whom are Jewish and have no Catholic axe to grind. And I was actually a little puzzled by it. I was reviewing Michael Wood's, I think it's called In Search of Shakespeare, when I first realized, aha, now we can say he's a minority. He's an oppressed minority as a Catholic under the oppressive Elizabethan regime, and increasingly critics present Elizabeth's regime uh, as oppressive, and there's a great deal of truth to that. But the, uh, you know, it's bad enough that Shakespeare's a dead white male, but he's a wasp. He's a white Anglo-Saxon who Protestant who got along with
0: the regime or with the establishment or less, that he was the a preacher the establishment at the time. Yeah, his
1: plays performed at court and so on, and so uh, if he could be a Catholic, then you could have him in a minority position, Uh, he's persecuted, uh, he's speaking truth to power, uh, and I do think he was, but not for this reason. Uh, uh, By the way, I do not think he was at all a a creature of the establishment. Uh, I, for example, have argued that he was a Republican. Small R. Small uh, R right. uh, that that he was uh, his plays about Rome were an attempt to revive the idea of Roman Republicanism and to modify the British monarchy in the direction of the mixed regime uh, of uh, the Roman Republic. And I think he actually succeeded uh, in that task. But anyway, just to show I'm not taking a conventional view of Shakespeare uh, myself, uh, but here you have the idea if Shakespeare is a Catholic, then we can start invoking all our methods of reading people who are outside the mainstream and, and battling persecution and champion a minority cause and so uh, the other side of that would be here to say that Shakespeare these plays were written by a woman uh, now it's a kind of fantasy uh, I uh, Again, what troubled me and a lot of other people about this article uh, is that the evidence is very weak in it. And Winkler more or less admits, I'm sitting there in a play, and I'm thinking it's really giving good portrayals of, women. oh, a woman must have wrote in the, written these plays. And that, you know, it's just, I wish this was true, so it is true. And it's another illustration of how postmodernism... Uh, has corrupted our world, that this postmodern claim that there is no truth with a capital T, has now opened us up uh, to all sorts of fake news. And it is now fake news in the academic world. Uh, It's clear The Atlantic published this because they thought it would sell copies and get interest, and it did, and again, it would be the idea, well, we got attention, Uh, who cares if it's mainly negative attention, our name is in the news, and that, by the way, is what stokes this whole movement and keeps it alive uh, almost two centuries uh, at this point, that it's not news that Shakespeare wrote his plays, we all know that, but it is news if Francis Bacon wrote them, or the Earl of Oxford, or Amelia Bassano.
0: Well, let's go back maybe then to the beginning of this movement. There's this sort of postmodern, you might say, yeah. attempt to say Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare, maybe couldn't have been Shakespeare. But the earlier movement, I mean, it's not coming out of nowhere, so there yes, a, there's yes, a long in fact, history is, of this uh, Shakespeare denial yeah. or whatever you Although want to call it. Although it's
1: not as long as as some people think. In the, uh, the Atlantic's original uh, uh, subheader was the authorship controversy almost as old as the works themselves has yet to surface a compelling alternative to the man buried in Stratford. Well as people quickly pointed out The authorship uh, 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 controversy is not as old as the plays themselves. Shakespeare was controversial in his day, and there were arguments whether he was stealing from other authors and so on. But no one at the time doubted that Shakespeare wrote the plays. So if you go online now, to which Shakespeare woman, what you read is the authorship controversy as yes, has to surface a compelling alternative. It yes,
0: so took out the Yeah, so this the is
1: the problem in the world of the internet. The history just Good. gets rewritten right. here, and it's an interesting case that that did happen. Uh, Anyway, to give credit where credit is due, the first person to question seriously that Shakespeare wrote his plays was named James Wilmot. And this was in 1785.
0: Is that right? That yeah. late? Yeah. So basically, was. in the 17th century, all these 17th century critics and yeah. poets and in the 18th century, of yeah. which there were a ton, yeah. appreciators of Shakespeare, had no issue. I mean, it was just that was Shakespeare, and yeah. they discussed and, and the plays, and there was none of this.
1: There's a, a false idea that, uh, there are only a few references to Shakespeare in his time. Uh, there are dozens upon dozens of references, people writing poems as tributes to him, people referring to, uh, to him uh, as the author of the plays and as a great poet. Uh, uh, we talked in one of our preceding conversations about Sir Francis Mears and his pallidus, Tamiya, where uh, he lists the great playwrights of his day and presents Shakespeare as the greatest of them.
0: Uh, and, in and shortly after, I mean, I don't know much about this, but in the 17th and 8, early 18th century, it's taken for granted that he's a very great
1: oh, figure, yes. right? It's not yeah. like
0: he's... Well, obscure not what is not one of these. Not like yeah, Mozart or something who's forgotten for uh, <laughs> decades. Yeah, or a d- no,
1: during uh, you know he got eclipsed by um, his sidekick John Fletcher uh, after Fletcher replaced him as the main. Uh, playwright for the Kingsman. Uh, but he, as soon as plays were revived in 1660 with the Restoration, uh, his plays were revived, and uh, in the 18th century he emerged.
0: He's the uh, Bard, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Without all, even yeah. even you don't even you see this like yeah. even in the Federalist Papers as yeah. a quote and. Yeah, too, and uh, I think it's the as the, uh, if we may quote the Bard. They don't even mention Shakespeare's name, as I recall. Yeah.
1: Now, just uh, the the best book on this controversy is by James Shapiro, and it's called "Contested Will," who wrote Shakespeare. Great title. Good title Contested right? will. I wish I could come up with titles like that. Uh, uh, but uh, he points out it, it it was only when Shakespeare became idolized. And indeed, turned into a god, that heretics became possible. It's a very interesting yeah, way of looking sense, at it. Yeah. Uh, that uh, uh, let's say people could live with the thought that uh, this guy from Stratford uh, was a very good playwright. But once you claimed he was a god, uh, and and that's the language used by the late eighteenth century. Uh, uh, that uh, you. <laughs> Uh, you encourage people to think, well, this can't, it can't have been so great. At least not uh, some country bumpkin from Warwickshire uh, can't be so great. And so it encouraged people to start. Co- so
0: the line of attack is less he's not a god, the plays are all flawed, but rather I guess that would be one possible line of attack. The other possible line of attack is he didn't write them, right? Right,
1: exactly. And that's when you get... Uh, start to get these arguments that, uh, again, Francis Bacon was the first alternative proposed. And uh, I have here, just to thrill you in the audience, this is a first printing, first edition of the first book ever to question that Shakespeare wrote his plays. It's called The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded by Delia Bacon. Now, no relation to Francis, but towards the end of his life, her life, she started I thing she was. Uh, this extremely valuable book, uh, which I purchased for $5 in a used bookstore. You can email
0: uh, us if you're interested in making yeah. a really outlandish offer for this book. Right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's in pretty good condition.
1: Uh, no markings. Uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, this so that, when did
0: she when did she write this?
1: 1857. Oh, that it late. Out. So what is I I I brought it to show that this whole controversy really is quite late. Uh, I mean, it, there were various comments and theories going around, but the first serious book. The first serious challenge to Shakespeare's authorship was 1857, so recent I own a copy of yeah. the first printing uh, of it. Uh, and I just had it authenticated by a bibliographer that it is the first printing. Uh, now, it's actually a pretty remarkable book. Uh, and, for example, Nathaniel Hawthorne uh not only wrote a preface for it, but he paid for its printing in England. He was so impressed with her, though he's rather cagey in the preface in not uh, revealing, uh, not saying that he agrees with her. Now this book is talked about but very seldom read. In fact, I read one comment and said that no one has ever read it. And I have to confess there may be some truth to that. It's perhaps the most unreadable book. I've ever seen, I it's 700 pages long in very small print. I've now read about 300 pages of it, and uh, not consecutively, because I read like the first 100 pages, the last 100 pages, and a uh, middle 100 pages. It's one of the strangest books ever written. Uh, uh, she writes very well, though her sentences are infinitely long. Her prose is overheated. She's making titanic claims. Uh, on every other page about changing the world uh, uh, I'm going to try to state her thesis but it's very hard because she never does uh, I, I, it's very hard to understand how weird this book is uh, uh, she almost never but it gives
0: birth to a whole s- yes, series yes of things, exactly, so. uh, uh,
1: she almost never names names everything is she'll be talking about Uh, the only man in England who was great enough to have comprehended a subject of such depth. Now, she should say Francis Bacon, but she won't. You can read for pages and not be sure who she's talking about. But as far as I can gather her thesis, uh, it is that uh, 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 the Elizabethan era was one of great repression. Uh, that uh, Elizabeth ruled as a tyrant, uh, and the writers at the time, uh, reacting to this absolutism of the Tudor regime, could not speak openly, uh, and therefore they had to find coded ways uh, uh, to write. In fact, she she this I don't uh, she talks openly about esoteric writing. She's like the Leo Strauss of the nineteenth century. Uh, and it's quite remarkable. I don't have time to read passages, but there are extended passages about the nature of esoteric writing, that in an era of persecution, authors have to learn to write secretly. and And she believes that Shakespeare's plays are the esoteric expression of the of Bacon's philosophy. Uh, but this is all in conjunction with Sir Walter Raleigh as well uh, she's a real conspiracy theorist she believes that the men who uh, opposed Elizabeth's regime uh, and wanted to uh, end uh, Tudor absolutism were uh, working secret working secretly to to um, uh, subvert the regime. She chooses Walter Raleigh as her first example and discusses him at great length. Uh, uh, but then uh, she sees Raleigh in league with Bacon, uh, and she brings in the great poet uh, Edmund Spencer. She actually mentions the Earl of Oxford. Uh, she claims there was this conspiracy uh, of philosophical opponents. Of Elizabethan tyranny, uh, who wrote works like Bacon's uh, *Novum Organum* and *The Advancement of Learning*, uh, but uh, settled upon plays to be the means of getting this message out to the audience, and and that's where we get uh, Shakespeare's plays. Now she's uh, again there's remarkable passages where she uses the word esoteric of writing, and she has uh, read. Bacon very carefully, particularly the advancement of learning. Uh, I've written about the advancement of learning, and so I know she's she's quoting the right passages. I know that, because they're the same passages mm-hmm. I quote in my essay on Francis Bacon. Uh, uh, she knew Morse of Morse code fame, and so she was uh, alive to the notion of ciphers, of coding, and so she came upon 20 pages in advanced learning that discuss codes uh and they are really remarkable Uh, they are tucked away in the middle of the book and yet they're the i'm saying this now Mm -hmm. they are the key to the whole book bacon's discussion of secret codes is a discussion of esoteric writing right and it's just an amazing example of esoteric writing he seems to be talking about something as Uh, trivial as cryptograms, but is really telling you how to write uh, esoterically. And she understands that. Uh, uh, And she uh, works out. Bacon had something called the bilateral cipher. I can actually explain it, but we don't have 20 minutes. Uh, But she understands uh, the bilateral cipher, and she thinks it's at work in Shakespeare's I mean,
0: they did use a lot of ciphers and codes in yes, diplomatic did. Yes, correspondence, yes, and right? And it wasn't fr- ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, you had uh,
1: Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth's spymaster, uh, who was charged with tracking down these codes and breaking them. So the, there's an awful lot of truth in this book. And she, she writes at length about King Lear, Julius Caesar, Coriolanus she's Coriolanus which is my personal favorite among Shakespeare's plays and I've written two books about it uh, uh, she devotes more time to Coriolanus in this book than, She's kind
0: of the Paul Cantor of the 19th century it, let's well, put it that way okay know? Yeah. all right all right that,
1: uh, I'm legendarily uh, I legendarily write clearly yes and you she, do, you does, she does she does
0: and you don't write 850 page pages. yeah
1: it so. is it's so strange that I keep waiting for her to say what a play is about, and she never does, she hints at stuff. And uh, uh, and the, the most frustrating thing about the book is she keeps saying she has another volume of historical studies that prove all this, and it's very possible she did and no one would publish it. Oh, well. But the all the evidence is not in the book, it's in an unpublished book that we have no access to it. It's a it. good project for you for the yeah. next
0: you know, few years. Uh, right? you uh, I wonder dig where... it down in some uh, country so, uh, house, country uh, manor in, in England. You know? uh,
1: she is American, I'll say. She went over to England with the project of digging up Shakespeare's grave so that she could find the manuscripts of his plays. And she was not allowed to do it. And then she wanted to dig up Bacon's tomb to find the manuscripts. Uh, it's really, I, I, I should, I've been hesitant to say, it. she went insane two years after the This book came out. It's actually a very sad story, and there are hints in this book that she's uh, on her way. Uh, And in that sense, you know, I I don't want to impugn her. I'm I'm saying much nicer things about her than almost anyone does. Anyway, so she
0: gets this whole thing going. Yes, and, and what the, is the thrust of the general arguments that then get take over and the okay, so let's, Shakespeare can't be? Why can't Shakespeare be Shakespeare according to these nineteenth century? Okay, okay. Types? Uh, uh,
1: uh, I should start with that. The basic argument uh, turns on, on education. Uh, the idea is that we have no records of Shakespeare's education, uh, and uh, in fact. We don't have records of his non-education because the records of the grammar school in Stratford have been lost. We do know a lot about that grammar school and Shakespeare probably went there because his father was virtually mayor of Stratford at one point, was a wealthy tradesman. He was a glover. Uh, He was in the glove trade. Uh, And uh, 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 one thing we know is these... students in Stratford were very well-educated in Latin. People who said they probably came out of that high school knowing Latin better than most classics majors colleges today. One thing they did for example, again we have records what the curriculum was, they were reading Virgil, they were reading Ovid, one thing they would have to do was translate a passage in Latin into English and then retranslate it into Latin without making reference to the original. That really teaches you Latin. Uh, Uh, Ben Johnson famously said of Shakespeare that he had uh, small Latin and less Greek. Uh, But Ben Johnson was one of the great classical scholars of the age. So that means Shakespeare uh, had a good deal of Latin and even knew Greek, Uh, probably knew New Testament Greek. Uh, But anyway, the argument is uh, that uh, he was uneducated and didn't go to college. Now it turns out Ben Johnson didn't go to college. Ben Johnson, uh, who was the son of a bricklayer, uh, got into the Westminster School in London. Uh, We'd call it a magnet school now. It's the best school in London, and got a great education uh, there, but never went to college. Uh, A few of the playwrights, like Christopher Marlowe, went to college. uh, uh, And uh, the group of them were even called the university wits. And it does seem that they made fun of Shakespeare when he first came to London for not having a college education. Uh, but so a lot of the argument is he didn't have a college education. Uh, he shows knowledge of foreign lands, uh, such as Italy. Uh, his description of Venice, it's pretty accurate. He knows that business is done on the Rialto and uh, he knows what a gondola is. And uh, so, uh, uh, and of course, He displays uh, great knowledge of the aristocracy uh, and I'd say really deep knowledge that he understands uh, the aristocratic nature as well as Plato and Aristotle do, for example. Uh, uh, And so that's why people think uh, that this man from Stratford, as they refer to him, uh, was not well educated enough. Uh, to write these plays, and so that's one. also
0: not from noble. It'd be better if he were from noble yes, origins, right? Too yes. much of a commoner kind of.
1: Yes, and there was a. Now remember this. Th- this is flourishing in the Victorian era, uh, and so one thing you get uh, is a late Puritan response to the vulgarity of the plays, all the uh, dirty jokes and all the double entendres. Uh, Uh, And people wished that wasn't part of the plays. And so the argument would be uh, that someone like Bacon wrote the plays and he arranged to have them staged. And Shakespeare was the front man, uh, but being this vulgar country bumpkin, he added these dirty jokes to please the audience. And so, uh, uh, you know, Shakespeare was highly... Bowdlerized, expurgated uh, in the nineteenth century. Uh, The the uh,
0: when is Mr. Bowdler? He's it's nineteenth century, nineteenth century England, and so uh,
1: uh, and there were all these efforts to rewrite uh, Shakespeare, clean the stuff up, and so that was the thinking uh, in the Victorian period. And uh, in a weird way, this is all very middle class. Though it's trying to conjure up an aristocratic Shakespeare, it's a kind of middle-class fantasy of the aristocrat uh, as well-bred, uh, contrary to the nature of these Elizabethan aristocrats who we'll see when we talk about the Earl of Oxford, were not exactly the most admirable people in the world. but. Uh, Just to focus on the issue of college education, it's such a bourgeois thing to think that you need a college education to write a great work of literature. Uh, Obviously, throughout most of literary history, the authors didn't have college educations. Uh, uh, But even when they did, it was not what we think of as a college education. Oxford and Cambridge Uh, during Shakespeare's lifetime and well before and well beyond, uh, were basically there to train ministers. You had to know Latin to be able to read the Vulgate uh, translation of the Bible. You had to know some Greek to be able to read the New Testament. And insofar as there was a Curriculum at Oxford, it was a curriculum in the classics in that sense. But uh, Shakespeare might well have been taught by an Oxford graduate in the Stratford Grammar School, and that's how we would have learned his Latin and Greek. Uh, but uh, as to what else happened, uh, they were basically social institutions. Now, take Christopher Marlowe, who did go to Cambridge. Uh, But there's this strange fact about Christopher Marlowe uh, that he didn't seem to spend much time at Cambridge. And indeed, when it came degree time, Cambridge refused to grant him his degree. And the Privy Council, Elizabeth's Privy Council, had to intervene to order Cambridge to give Marlowe his degree because he was on Her Majesty's service. And if you're thinking James Bond here, you are correct. No one knows for sure, but the theory is that uh, Marlowe uh, had traveled to the continent to spy on Catholic refugees, uh, who were a problem for Elizabeth's regime, and he may have been mixing among these refugees uh, to find out if any plots were going on against Elizabeth. That's the best theory of why he was absent from class. But it gives you some idea what kind of education right. was he getting, uh, and you, you see that uh, as well. I mean, uh, just to jump ahead to the Earl of Oxford here is another reason people offer him— So
0: who's a big candidate in this the, world, the, right? The, besides
1: Bacon, the other big candidate, right. there, the other two we'll discuss. Uh, but uh, people—the Earl of Oxford enrolled at Cambridge when he was eight years old. Uh, now that seems prodigious to us. Now what an intellectual prodigy! And my he he must have had sixteen hundred SAT scores. Right. To get well, it's just such an anachronistic view of what it goes to what it meant to go to Oxford. Uh, it was there as like a finishing school for him. Uh, and here's the joke: there's no record of his ever getting. A BA from, uh, from Cambridge. He has MAs from Cambridge, honorary MAs uh, from Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, and so this notion that he was this brilliant student uh, who got this great education at Cambridge and Oxford, and you will see it quoted again and again, that he had MAs uh, from Oxford Cambridge. Now let me ask you something. How hard do you think it would be for the Earl of Oxford To get an honorary degree from Oxford, Uh,
0: plus he's a big shot, right? Yes, he was politically. It was it was
1: the second oldest aristocratic family in England, uh, and if he hadn't screwed up his whole life, he would have been a close counselor of uh, Queen Elizabeth. But. You know what honorary degrees yeah, yeah, yeah. are like today. Yep. They are, here's your degree, write us a check. Right. Uh, I mean, we uh, even today you can observe a certain corruption in academic life that particularly honorary degrees are not necessarily a re- uh, reflection of some kind of intellectual brilliance. So, I mean, uh, we're told, oh, Oxford must have ridden the place because he had M.A.'s from Oxford and Cambridge. But, you know, again... Uh, <laughs> How much does it take for the Earl of Oxford to get a degree? From but how Oxford? much of
0: this is about Bacon or Oxford? I guess in Delia Bacon's case, it's sort of about Bacon. But and how much of it's about? It can't be Shakespeare. Oh, he's is this it? commoner? Yes. He's a play. He's an actor. Yes. We we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, they don't like the idea of some guy who just comes from Stanford from Stanford. Uh, that would be even worse. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's terrible. Right. Um, it comes to London and just becomes a, I guess, part of, partly a business, an owner, and partly yes. a player uh, in this. Another,
1: you know, very thing. interesting, uh, uh, very interesting aspect to it is the anti-commercial spirit, which is so characteristic of Victorian England uh the the English class system that uh, you see in Jane Austen where uh, you can't marry a man because he made his money by trade right. uh, uh, and and so uh, a lot of it was the anti-commercial spirit. Now uh, starting in the late 18th century, there was a great effort to uncover biographical documents about Shakespeare. Uh, People wanted to know more about him. They were fascinated by him. They wanted to understand. So there was this great… We don't have any letters by him. We don't have a diary from him. Uh, Surely we can find something uh, that shows he's real. Now the result, again Shapiro shows this in his book, was forgeries. People started… The uh, market works, right? The market works, yes. This guy, I think it's William Henry Ireland. uh, forged a diary by Shakespeare, letters from Shakespeare to the Earl of Southampton and back, uh, forged a manuscript of King Lear. Yeah. Uh, you go, oh, we don't have his Well, I found one. Eventually, forged a play, Vortigern. He found a lost play by Shakespeare. Unfortunately, he staged it, uh, and the audience broke out in laughter. Yeah. It was so bad, and that was the end of that. Uh, but. Uh, There was this desperate effort to find some signs of Shakespeare and they found them. Uh, And what they found that Shakespeare in addition to be a successful commercial playwright uh, traded in real estate, uh, he loaned money, uh, and he was involved in the malt trade. Uh, That was a big business in in Stratford Uh, and he was actually accused of engrossing at one point (laughs) <laughs> it gives you an idea of how mercantilist and pre-capitalist Shakespeare's England was. Uh, in, Shakespeare was caught hoarding grain because he thought the price was going to go up. Mm-hmm. In other words, just the way businessmen behave, normal function on the market, he was hoarding grain in case there'd be an emergency. Right. And he'd make a lot of money, but he'd feed people when they didn't have a food deed, anyway, good businessman, Will. Uh, uh, But they just didn't find what they wanted. They wanted a love letter to Anne Hathaway. They wanted letters to his mistress, whoever she was. They wanted something to show what a sweet guy he was. And and all they found uh, were largely documents from law cases uh, where he's suing some guy for failure to pay debts. And, uh, and, you know, it's pretty clear that he wanted to make money, and he was the most successful uh, playwright uh, of his day. By the way, uh, one of the charges against him is there. there's not a single record of his being paid for a play. There's a guy named Philip Henslow. We discovered his diary. He was a theater manager. And we actually have these markings uh uh, five pounds uh, to William Rowley for additions to Dr. Faustus, mm. and this is a wonderful document because we can see what people were paid and how they were brought in, brought in script doctors and so on, uh, and there's no such record for Shakespeare. Well, there's a simple answer to that, Shakespeare was the big one. He was number one. He had, to put it in Hollywood terms, a percentage of the gross. Uh-huh in Hollywood terms, Shakespeare had points. Mm -hmm. So he was not paid the normal way for plays, uh, given a fixed fee, he was a shareholder, Uh, in what was first the Lord Chamberlain's Men and then the King's Men, uh, part owner of the Globe Theater and so on. And he didn't make his money from simple paintings. He got a percentage of the profits.
0: And he was an actor too, right? Yes, he was an actor. So he was very much like...
1: A man of the theater. Now, here I just have... This is actually the greatest moment in my scholarly life was a moment when Charlton Heston came to my rescue. And you'll understand this This it's something that happened in the Weekly Standard. I was reviewing one of these anti-Shakespeare books by Joe Sobrand uh, called Alias Shakespeare, Solving the Greatest Literary Mystery of All Time. And I had some fun at Sobrand's expense uh, uh, in this essay. It's a long story, but basically I called him a Marxist. Uh, Joe Sobrand was a very conservative. Uh, writer, and I knew I could get his goat by calling him a Marxist, because he was claiming only an aristocrat could have written these plays, a commoner couldn't have writ them, uh, written them, and that's a Marxist uh, yeah. class conscious position. Uh, and I got some really nasty uh, letters in response, one from Sober and one from someone else. But I was amazed when I opened up the May nineteenth, 1997 issue of the Weekly Standard. And Charlton Heston has written this long uh, letter, in my defense. We were amazed
0: to get it at the yeah, office. So yeah. This was pre—I don't know if it came in by—this was very early email. This may have actually come in the mail, yeah. Amaz- amazingly Yeah, enough. and it's,
1: it's on Charlton Heston, Beverly Hills, California. But it's such a marvelous letter, and it's so intelligent and so cultured. I just want to read two paragraphs. From it, Uh, uh, being a writer, Sobrin misreads Shakespeare as academics do. He treats him as a writer. I know, there he is on the page. But that's not where he or his plays live. Shakespeare leaps alive in air in the spoken sound of his words. Only actors really understand this, though audiences sense it subliminally in performance. When you're redacting the plays in rehearsal, you make the changes in terms of the sound as much as the meaning. That's what Shakespeare did as actor-manager. His plays loom so massively over all the other writing in the world because of his sublime gift, but it was a poet player's gift. He created those men and women to live on a stage, seen in light and sudden dark, heard in cries and whispers. Exploring them there reveals more than a lifetime in a library can. And that's so eloquent and it's so correct. Uh, The people have it all wrong. The claim was how could an actor uh, have written uh, these plays? Well, an actor is an awfully good candidate for having written the plays because they show an actor's sense. Uh, And my theory would be uh, Shakespeare's college education was the Globe Theater. Actually, it wasn't the Globe because it wasn't built until later. Uh, But uh, uh, Shakespeare lived at a time when apprenticeship was the real model of education. Uh, Let's take Leonardo da Vinci. A universal genius, the, the other candidate for greatest mind of the Renaissance, came from a provincial town, curiously called Vinci, <laughs> uh, uh, and came. Where to, is that? Somewhere. It's northeast of Florence, hmm. uh, uh, and he came to Florence. He didn't go to college. Now,
0: this is earlier than Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, 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 it I mean... is. But here's another genius, right? Uh, one of the greatest painters of all time, and. How did he study painting? He didn't go to the fine arts department of the University of Rome. He went to Verrocchio uh, and he learned painting in the studio of Verrocchio. There are some paintings where, you know, Verrocchio painted part of it, Da Vinci painted the other part. Uh, uh, and in general, when you go to the Italian Renaissance painters, uh, they were all sons of middle class businessmen, of artisans, uh, frequently of uh, goldsmiths. Mm-hmm. Again, Shakespeare was the son of a glove maker. For that matter, Marlowe was the son of a shoemaker and Ben Johnson was the son of a bricklayer. They all came out of these middle-class backgrounds of artisanship. And we now think of <coughs> literature as <coughs> romantic self-expression. Uh, again, now the idea of the expression of identity. Shakespeare lived in a world of craftsmanship. Literature was craftsmanship. Painting was craftsmanship. Sculpture was craftsmanship. How did you learn to be a sculptor? Uh, Like Michelangelo, you went to a sculptor and learned the craft. So uh, as far as we can see, Shakespeare came to London. He saw that the theater was the fast lane for success. Uh, He became an actor and worked his way up in this theater company. And all the time, he was learning by doing. Uh, it's, uh, London at that time was the greatest school of drama in drama the, in the world. And again, uh, is, uh, in some ways, his dramas are not poetry. They are dramas. And his great skill is dramatic. It's in the constructing of plots. When you look at his earliest plays, uh, Comedy of Errors, the Henry VI plays, they're already extremely dramatic. The poetry is not as good uh, as in the later plays. It takes him a while to learn that. But he knows what's a dramatic scene and that's because he was observing Thomas Kidd and Robert Greene and Christopher Marlowe. Uh, And that was the best way he could learn to do it by apprenticing himself. And uh, (coughs) Shapiro brings up this point that's very relevant to the uh, uh, authorship question, Uh, namely the collaborative nature of of plays in Shakespeare's day. Uh, The the theories of Bacon or Oxford, they all assume that the way you write a play (coughs) is go off into a study somewhere, and write this perfect play in isolation. The
0: solitary Uh, (coughs) artist. The solitary
1: artist who then hands it over to Shakespeare, who kind of (coughs) makes it popular with a few dirty jokes uh, and and so on. Uh, uh, Now, uh, in recent decades, increasingly, people have come to recognize uh, the collaborative nature of Shakespeare's art. And here it's interesting. It's his earliest and his latest plays that are collaborative. Uh, the bulk of his career, he was unusual among Elizabethan Jacobean playwrights in that he could write great plays all by himself. Marlowe, for example, was a great tragic writer, but evidently not good at comedy, and we think that the theater companies brought in someone, the guy I mentioned, William Raleigh, who wrote the comic scenes in Dr. Faustus, uh, which do seem to be on a lower level then the tragic scenes. (coughs) Shakespeare could write comedy and tragedy. He's actually very unusual uh, in the history of drama in that respect, although one of his contemporaries, Thomas Middleton, uh, was equally good at comedy uh, and, and tragedy. But it does seem at the beginning of his career Shakespeare had to work his way in. He couldn't show up and say, I'm William Shakespeare, the greatest playwright ever. He had to prove himself. So it does look that, for example, Titus Andronicus, many people now, in fact, most people think it's a collaboration with Robert Greene. Uh, most recently, people were claiming that one of the parts, uh, Henry VI, was written along uh, with Marlowe. Uh, there, And these are based on stylistic grounds and other considerations. It does look li- like early in his career uh, uh, he worked with other playwrights. Now how does that fit the Earl of Oxford theory, how does it fit the Francis Bacon theory? Uh, The whole premise of those theories is that these guys were keeping themselves aloof. Uh, The theory is that an aristocrat uh, would be ashamed to be writing for the commercial theatre and therefore concealed uh, his authorship by passing it off. Uh, on Shakespeare. Uh, but how could he conceal his authorship if he was collaborating with another author? Now similarly, at the end of his career, Shakespeare started uh, some more collaborations. Pericles was written with a man named George Wilkins, who undoubtedly wrote the first two acts uh, of the play. Uh, and above all, Shakespeare started working with John Fletcher. And he co-authored Henry the VIII, two noble k- uh, kinsmen, and uh the lost play cardinio there is a lost play by shakespeare we have overwhelming records that 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 he wrote a play called cardinio with john fletcher and it was taken from Cervantes Don Quixote so we've lost uh, uh, terrible. It mm-hmm. really, it's yeah. really a shame uh, uh, but anyway it's like something from
0: Borges or something yes, you know, indeed. that it wouldn't actually really be a loss. Uh, it would be a sort of fake lost play yeah you know? <laughs> but it,
1: uh, it's very complicated some guy in the 18th century claimed to have a manuscript of it and rewrote it and so we have a play called The Double Falsehood by Louis Tybalt uh, which claims to be an adaptation uh, of it uh, in any case What seems to be happening there is Shakespeare is training his successor and building up his reputation. Uh, uh, One puzzle about William Shakespeare's life is he appears to stop writing around 1610, 1611, and he doesn't die till 1616. My own theory, and some people share this, is that he did deliberately retire from the stage in order to prepare. A complete edition of his plays, and uh, be, none of his plays uh, were ever published uh, with his supervision. It's a great problem with Shakespeare texts that uh, uh, he did not proofread them or even supervise them. I believe he uh, he decided he was going to prepare an edition. Unfortunately, died uh, at the age of 52 uh, before completing the task. I think. When you look at the plays, several of them, The Tempest, and Cleopatra, and Coriolanus, have such beautiful, near-perfect texts that I think Shakespeare had succeeded in preparing those. They were among the last plays he wrote as if he was working back. From what he'd written most recently, and again, unfortunately, or those
0: texts are published in the edition that comes out
1: his in the death, folio. Yes, in the first yeah, folio. yeah. And 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 by the way, you know, uh, another frequent argument is that Shakespeare's death went unrecognized uh, uh, in 1616, uh, uh, and it took seven years. Uh, for his friends to bring out the first folio. It would take editors 40 years today to bring out that edition. Uh, And it's clear it was recognition of his genius uh, that his friends uh, and by the way, there are 18 plays that we would not otherwise have if it weren't for the first folio.
0: Is uh, that right, we don't have this? Uh, the this cordos, yeah, the, no. Yeah. It, it wow. wouldn't,
1: we wouldn't have uh, Julius Caesar, we wouldn't have Othello. So we his friends have,
0: uh, go to all the trouble of producing this, so to speak, authoritative yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, compilation yeah, of yes. the Yes, and, and
1: in which they, they did what looks to us primitive now, but some form of editing. And again, I think they had the paper, papers, and I think Shakespeare had made arrangements uh, with them. Uh, so, And a folio was an incredibly expensive volume. It would cost an ordin- ordinary purple mo- person more than a, a year's wages to buy that folio. Uh, and so, uh, And in fact, Fortunately, Ben Johnson had prepared a folio edition of his plays in 1616 and called them works, which shocked people because plays were not supposed to be works, Hmm. opera. They were not supposed to be fancy literary works. They were the way we would regard a TV script now. And fortunately, Ben Johnson prepared the way for accepting the idea of a folio edition of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, So again, that's... It shows you how narrow-minded, and, and again, in a sense, anachronistic, uh, this notion that there was no recognition of his death. The first folio is the great monument to Shakespeare, and it was presented as such in the first folio, and Ben Jonson wrote this great encomium to Shakespeare uh, there. So, anyway, this is what I keep saying, that people are re- reading Shakespeare as if he were a mono author. For example, there's a continuous complaint that he didn't leave the copyright of his works to his family and his will. There was no authorial copyright until well into the 18th century in England. Uh, There was publishing copyright, the publisher held the copyrights, and in Shakespeare's case, his theater company owned the plays. Uh, He worked for this theater company, again, as a stockholder. But that was the great thing it meant to have Shakespeare writing for you, that you had the exclusive use of his plays. So he did not own any copyrights uh, he could pass on. So we have all these theories that that, uh, uh, the person who wrote these plays can't have been a man of the theater. And that's so completely wrong that again and again, what you see about Shakespeare is that he was a man of the theater so that for example in this case of john fletcher uh, shakespeare's theater company decided to open up a private theater Uh, they had been performing in the globe since around 1599 1600 uh, but they got a chance to lease a theater called the blackfriars Uh, it was an indoor theater their plan was to cater To a a, a smaller audience, I think the Blackfriars sat about 600 people, whereas the Globe could take 2,500 or 3,000, but they were going to charge six times as much for a ticket. uh, and of course, they could perform in the winter, uh, since it was an indoors theater. Uh, if you want to see what it looked like in Stanton, Virginia, there's a marvelous replica of it, which has a and a local theater company that performs Shakespeare there, and you can see what it was like to perform in the Blackfriars. But it's very interesting that. Uh, this was going to be a big move for theater. Now, they were going to continue to perform in the Globe uh, during the summers, uh, but still, this was a big deal. And there were all these signs that they prepared for it. Uh, and one of the things they did was they knew they needed new playwrights. Uh, a lot of the famous playwrights had died at this point. Shakespeare was getting old. Uh, and so they seemed to have uh, lit upon this guy, John Fletcher. Mm-hmm. And they were right because he eventually teamed up with a guy named Francis Beaumont, whom they also brought in. And Beaumont and Fletcher were the Gilbert and Sullivan of the 17th century. Their plays uh, became more popular than Shakespeare's in the 1610s, 20s, 30s, and right up to the uh, Puritans shutting down the theater. And at the time of the Restoration in 1660, Shakespeare's plays were were revived, but Beaumont and Fletcher's plays were revived. Shakespeare and his company knew something. Hmm. They knew that this was the next Shakespeare. Now, in larger terms, he was not, but he was a very successful player, again, especially after he teamed, teamed up with Francis Beaumont, And they hit upon a new kind of play that aristocratic audiences would like. They're called tragic comedies. They're stories that have all this tragic material, but they have a turn towards a comic uh, uh, ending. Something Uh,
0: Shakespeare anticipated, though. Well, yes. And Shakespeare's comedies are uh, often that way, right? Yes. And then
1: he wrote uh, a number of tragic comedies along with Fletcher, uh, including uh, two noble kinsmen, uh, uh, and uh, and it does seem that Shakespeare changed his st- style, and it definitely changes his style. I read you a passage from Winter's which is a good example of a late Shakespeare play, a tragic comedy, and the style becomes incredibly baroque. Uh, much harder to follow, and yet audiences evidently could follow. He changes his style, and he changes the very substance of his plays. Uh, he moves from tragedy to tragic comedy, uh, and again the. This is something that the Earl of Oxford or Francis Bacon would have known nothing about. Uh, It's something that grows out of the theater world itself, where Shakespeare's anticipating trends, uh, working with the youngest playwrights uh, to keep the King's Men going. And, And again, by the way, he shows knowledge of the individual actors who were in his company. And there's a marvelous touch, this, that uh, Shapiro points out, uh, that uh, 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 in some of Shakespeare's plays, as they're published in his day, in these cordos, he sometimes puts the actor's name instead of the character's name. He knows that Will Kemp is mm-hmm. playing Dogberry. Uh, or he knows that Will Kemp is playing Lancelot Gobo, and when when he's writing it out, he puts Kemp instead of mm-hmm. Gobo or Dogberry. Now we don't know this for sure because we don't have the manuscripts. But in many cases, these cordos were uh, published from manuscripts. There are certain signs that tell us whether they come from manuscripts or prompt books or whether they've been, as we say, memorially reconstructed by people who just heard the plays. And, it, and now you don't know this if you read a modern edition. Most people don't realize how reconstructed any modern edition of Shakespeare is. They've all been edited. No two are the same. Right. Try it sometimes. Compare. Editors make different decisions. And so no one's going to leave Will Kemp in the margin for the character in a modern edition. They put in Dogberry or they put in a uh, Goebbels or Falstaff. Uh, uh, but again, these are signs that Shakespeare was working with the actors themselves. Uh, and uh, all the evidence is, uh, points to the fact that The person who wrote these plays was an active part of the theater world. Uh, uh, And that's why it's very unlikely it's Francis Bacon. But again, it's amazing to see the contempt people in the 19th century have for actors. It's a kind of political correctness. that. Because even in the 19th century, uh, as they did in Shakespeare's day, actors had a bad reputation. They were a suspect, and so you don't. How could an actor have written these plays? As Charlton Heston, an actor, points out, it's precisely an actor that would have written these plays. And we have many examples of actor playwrights: Moliere. France would be another great example, but you just have to look at uh, Sam Shepard in our day, Wallace Shawn. Uh, so many people who were actors go on to become playwrights or vice versa.
0: So let's close by saying a word uh, that's very interesting about—yeah, so the political—I you, like think you mentioned yeah. political correctness. i Victorian political correctness. Now we have identity politics political correctness. That's that's is that that's really, ultimately, in a funny way, what's behind the attempt to deny that Shakespeare is Shakespeare? I mean, different
1: yes, forms of— Yes. In, in different and, periods, we have different forms of orthodoxy or political correctness, and we have a certain model of what an author should be, uh, and Shakespeare doesn't fit that and model. And he's so
0: great, I suppose, that if you have that model, you need to apply it to—if he exists independent of that— Orthodoxy, yes, or contrary a, to that orthodoxy, yeah. it's a problem for the orthodoxy, right? If he can understand yeah. women as well as anyone has understood women, and, is, and isn't a woman, that's a problem for a certain kind of feminism. If he can understand aristocrats, that's a problem for a certain kind of Victorian. I guess that's yes, why—that's I mean, yeah. why they're so intense yeah. on intent on Shakespeare as opposed to other yeah, people. That's
1: the, yeah, I think that's a good point. That uh, now Shakespeare is the greatest author who ever lived. Certainly, the greatest playwright. And, and so much greater than anybody else, uh, that he's a real challenge. And uh, part of the, it is miraculous that any one person could have written these plays. I like to say that if you create a list of the 20 greatest works of literature, Shakespeare wrote about 10 of them. Right. Uh, and the
0: range, the and the English uh, yeah, history, ch- and Rome, and, and comedy, uh, and tragedy. Uh, yeah, and, uh, it just, I mean, it, it's
1: extraordinary. And it is simply, it simply cannot be explained. The joke of all this is people think uh, they could explain it. Uh, if it could just be a guy who went to college, then he could have written the plays. Well, a lot of people went to college, they can't write Shakespeare. If he could just be an aristocrat, uh, he could have written the plays. But in fact, there's no way to explain it. It's just one of the great miracles. And again, the Renaissance you know produced uh, Raphael, Leonardo, and Michelangelo, and they're not explainable either. Uh, and uh, uh, so, it just it is the the miracle of human genius. Uh, but in Shakespeare's case, it is the real challenge uh, uh, that uh, he just breaks all the categories. He, uh, you know. Johnson famously said in that prefatory poem, uh, to the first folio, it was not of an age, but for all time. Yeah, And here we are still reading him. And it is uh, miraculous. I mean, we talked about this when we were talking about canon formation in popular culture. I mean, Dante is incredibly great. Milton's incredibly great. But they're not read uh, the way Shakespeare is uh, or performed uh, well they, they didn't write plays but but you know Dante I guess in Italy people still read him but I don't think common people respond to Dante and they certainly don't uh, to John Milton and there's so many cases like that and Shakespeare uh transcends all the categories in this sense that he also uh, is still popular, still the most popular playwright in the world, and that's incredibly frustrating. A lot of the people that challenge him, uh, like Mark Twain, for example, wrote a whole book called Is Shakespeare Dead, trying to prove that Shakespeare was bacon? Uh, 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 They're just jealous. They're just envious of Shakespeare. Uh, 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 And uh, but, but this point with critics, Is Yeah, in the 19th century uh, you just have to look at someone like Matthew Arnold as a critic. He has such a middle class view uh, of the moral uprightness of literature. Uh, And so how could this guy from Stratford have written these plays that, after all, deal with adultery so much and all sorts of forms of criminality. But, you know, by the way, Shakespeare should have been a criminal if he created Iago and all characters Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, uh, So they want to remake Shakespeare in their Victorian image, and now in our day, Shakespeare not only has to be a feminist, but he has to be a woman. Uh, Because uh, that's what they think is the epitome of uh, human virtue. Uh, and just a re- refusal to accept the fact that uh, he was able to do what he w- was because he simply was uh, a genius and beyond categories. Now, I do th- I do think he was relatively learned. I increasingly think he read Aristotle, for example. Uh, certainly he had read Machiavelli. Uh, and by the way, it's interesting. Uh, uh, In some ways, uh, I have no uh, uh, problem if someone other than William Shakespeare wrote these plays. I don't do biographical criticism. I'm interested in what the plays express. I would have a problem with Bacon because (laughs) Bacon's philosophy is The absolute opposite of Shakespeare's. To put it in simple terms, I believe Shakespeare was an ancient and Bacon was a modern. And you see it on the issue of Machiavelli that Bacon was a deep Machiavellian. Uh, uh, And Shakespeare, though he had read Machiavelli and understood Machiavelli, he's ultimately anti-Machiavellian. And you can see that. in the contrast of his Richard Third and his Henry V, where Richard the Third is a pure Machiavellian and must be destroyed. Henry V is very Machiavellian, but ultimately knows to conceal that. Uh, and he's, You can say he's the ultimate Machiavellian, but he does understand that that you cannot simply pursue Machiavelli's low-minded view uh, of human nature. Anyway, we could talk forever about this stuff that's actually in Shakespeare's uh, plays, but uh, I find it amusing that with all due respect to Delia Bacon that uh, she, <laughs> uh, she thought that Bacon right. had written these plays aside from the fact he was so busy I mean he was writing volumes upon volumes of philosophy and history and he was also solicitor general attorney general and then very active uh, political uh, career uh, so uh, uh, That's the interesting thing that Yeah. There's something mysterious about Shakespeare in terms of his own greatness. And so people come forward with these alternatives and yet they are far more problematic in the case of the Earl of Oxford died in 1604. We can date Shakespeare's plays to 1610 or 11 uh, and based on contemporary references. For example, Macbeth is based on, uh, has references to the gunpowder plot uh, in 1605. So how, how did the uh, Earl of Oxford know the gunpowder plot against James versus God? Well, people say, well, he left these plays and, with instructions to add contemporary references uh, uh, to make them seem current. Uh, uh, in all cases with these alternatives, and again, Bacon and Oxford are the most popular of the candidates, uh, they require a lot more explanation than admitting that Shakespeare wrote them. Uh, they're constantly having to build up uh, uh, the equivalent of epicycles in, in, in astronomy to keep, it, uh, to keep their theory going. And at some point, it's just have to say, no, Shakespeare wrote these plays.
0: Turns out it's harder to accept true genius and human excellence than to invent all these, uh, yes, yes, these uh, workarounds, so to speak. It's
1: a good way of putting it. Uh,
0: this has been a fascinating conversation. I hope we've we've saved Shakespeare uh, for Shakespeare. Uh, and uh, now we can go back to having more conversations about Shakespeare. I'm looking forward to that. I'm very interested in the tragedy comedy question, because the Shakespearean comedies are so close to being tragedies. And you can really see even some, I think, parallels in some cases between. A tragedy and a comedy that he wrote, and he shows you that how easily a
1: yeah, comic Ber- 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 version Ber- of Venice is a could great have been. Of that. Yeah, we could have been But we'll, we'll, we'll discuss the them
0: with the presumption that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Yes. Paul Cantor, thank you for joining me today, awesome. and
1: thank you for joining us on Conversations.